Luke 23, verses 1 through 25. And hear the word of the Lord. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he, was, he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. <clears throat> Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they, they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have entrusted to us your word written down. We thank you that it is infallible and errant, preserved by the gracious move of your providence, arrived to us today in our hands and on our devices and in our ears. I pray that you would give us full confidence that we have heard the word of God as we have heard your word read. So, Lord, would you come now in the power of the Holy Spirit? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Soften our hearts, O God. And, Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard for the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, 
but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, would you speak to us even today? Speak, O God of glory. Speak, Father in heaven. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It's often said in polite company that you should avoid talking about religion and politics. And it's a good thing we're not in polite company uh, because this sermon will be inherently political. Now, probably not in the way that you immediately run to. I'm not here to advocate for the platform of the Republicans or for the Democrats. I'm not here to articulate a political theory or uh, to tell you how grand America is or some other country or some, um, some, some method of governance. But we do ourselves a disservice, disservice if we misunderstand that the gospel of Jesus Christ necessarily is political and it necessarily has political ramifications. It will not suffer our compartmentalization. Understand what I say, mean by that? The gospel of Jesus Christ, truly believed, the confession that Jesus is Lord, truly articulated and lived out, will not suffer living in a box in your life. You cannot just have a Jesus box where you go to church on Sunday morning, maybe on Wednesday night, maybe you read your Bible and you pray in the morning. You're a good person. You live out things. But if Jesus is not Lord over everything, then you cannot claim him of, as Lord of anything. Because what happens in chapter 23 is necessarily political. Jesus is delivered by the religious authorities who have political power and political aspirations. He is delivered by them at the end of chapter 22, we saw this sort of mock trial before the Sanhedrin, which is the, the Jewish ruling council. And he's delivered over from what could be religious authorities, one way to think about it, and brought into political authorities. And it is political authorities, political accusations, political threats that ultimately get Jesus killed. Pilate doesn't care that Jesus is, doesn't necessarily care that Jesus is blasphemous, according to the Sanhedrin, as we saw at the end of chapter 22. He does not bring him to the cross because he offended Jewish law. Now, it's just silence, you know. Because I grew up in, a, in Baptist churches where uh, we. And this is something that I want to make a, I want to make a distinction uh, that, that we articulate and we support the, the, the separation of church and state. But there is no such that that is an institutional separation. There is no separation between faith, theology and the state. Because if we're going to build a culture, there's always a cult at the center of the culture. Life is inherently religious. 
There are always ultimate propositions. There's always an ultimate worldview at work in the formulation of a culture. Now, this, this, that will take us afield. But you cannot have a culture without some sort of religious underpinnings. Whether those underpinnings are relativistic or pluralistic or atheistic or Muslim or Christian or Buddhist or Hindu, there must be some ultimate worldview articulation at the bottom of the foundational element of a culture. Otherwise, and this is exactly what we're seeing... Otherwise, the culture will end up as a frayed thread. With a million different stories, a million different views of truth, maybe not quite a million. However, how many people live in America? 300 plus million. So 300 plus, not really. Um, Views of truth and of value and of beauty. Of the nature of the world? Is this God's world or is this a world arrived at by chance? Do we exist here for the glory of another to, to bring pleasure and, and, and a smile to God's face? Do we, do we exist here as mirrors to reflect back the goodness and the greatness of God? Or do we exist here simply to serve our passions, serve our bodies, serve whatever inclinations we have in ourselves? Dear ones, those are religious. Those are religious. Questions. Now, when we come to Pilate and Herod and the Sanhedrin, you probably have three sorts of underpinning propositions or assumptions. Pilate is a career politician in the Roman Empire, and so he serves to make sure that the emperor is happy. At the end of his life, there, now there's, there's kind of scant information. There's not a lot of information about what happens to Pilate. He doesn't exist for very long. Both he and Herod Antipas, this is Herod, the Herod at the end of our chapter, or end of our passage this morning, is not Herod the Great who was around when Jesus was born, right? He died very shortly after Jesus' birth. This is one of his sons, Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is dead before AD 40. And there's good evidence that Pilate is dead before AD 40. So before, many of, before any of the books of the New Testament were actually written down, both of these guys are dead. Just as perspective. But Pilate lives at the behest of Caesar, and he lives to make Caesar happy. He is the governor or procurator of this province... Of Israel, now I'm not going to give you the whole like whole history of how we arrived here, um, but basically Rome is the empire that is right now on top. Right after the the Israel, they split Israel, Judah. Israel's taken over by the Assyrians. Judah is delivered over to Babylon in AD um, no BC, excuse me, five eighty six or so. And, uh, and they're carried off in exile. So you have Babylon. Babylon loses to the Persians. The Persians lose to the Greeks. Greeks that we don't have a lot in the New Testament about. The Greeks lose to the Romans. Top of the heap is what I mean. And so the people of Israel, the, the land of Israel, have basically been passed along. Now it's more complicated than that, but life often is. But they've basically been passed along from one overseeing empire, one ruling empire to another. 
They go from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans. And so they should be relatively comfortable as underlings to overlords. Uh, And they're in such a position because of their disobedience to God. But Pilate is the representation of this this empire that overrules, that rules over the people of Israel of, of the first century. And so Jesus now in the hands of the Sanhedrin, the whole company here in verse 1 is talking about the Sanhedrin, this religious body. So they, they go from their religious bubble, they transgress those boundaries and come into a political bound, a bubble to deliver Jesus over. And they do so because they want Jesus dead. And because of their political posture, they don't have the, the, the authority to wield the sword or the cross, so to speak. They don't have the authority to execute legally. So they want Jesus legally executed. They must go to the top of the heap and they must go to Pilate. Now, there could be some sort of mob thing where they tried to stone him. But the Sanhedrin did not have mob support. If you look at the testimony of the New Testament, the Gospels, Jesus is very popular for the most part until you come to this last week of his life. Now, he makes people upset along the way. Don't get me wrong. But by and large, crowds are pleasing, pleased with Jesus. But he is not living for the pleasure of crowds. But Jesus is bound and he's brought to Pilate and they began to accuse him. And there are three accusations or Uh, Or or probably a way to see this is there's one umbrella accusation and then there are specific accusations that fall under it. So the first one in verse two uh, that they began to accuse him saying we found this man misleading our nation. It's kind of vague and broad. Some translations say he's subverting. He's he's confusing them. He's leading them on a wrong path. And this is how he's doing it. And notice how these become super political. You're for, he's, this is the accusation that he's forbidding, right? So middle of verse two, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Now, we know that this is a patent lie because he's just said a couple chapters ago, you know, give me a denarius whose face is on it. Caesar's give what what belongs to Caesar to Caesar and what belongs to God, God. Right. So this is a lie. But they're they're fabricating accusations, but they're fabricating political accusations because it's political challenge that's going to get Jesus Killed, humanly speaking. Now, all of this is under what Peter says in his Pentecost sermon, the predetermined and foreknown purpose of God, that God has set this course in motion, and this is according to God's plan. But underneath and in the context of God's plan are all of these wicked machinery, all of the political aspirations of Pilate, the entertainment-driven longing of Herod, the control desire of the Sanhedrin, all of these things are at play in the context of God's plan. God's predestined plan. I'll use the big scary word, right? This is not accidental. And it it should lead you to how you understand God's sovereign hand at play in your own life today. That just because wickedness swirls around us, it does not mean that God has abandoned His plan. Because he has always and will continue to do so until the end of the world used wicked means that remain wicked. 
they remain godless and they remain sinful, he's always used such means to accomplish his end. Not, that, not exclusively, but he's always co-opted the evil of the evil one to work out for the good of God and the glory of God. So Jesus is delivered and he's delivered in weakness. This is the king of glory and he submits himself to weakness to, to be brought bound to and answerable to Pilate. Not even the emperor. But this little governor of a little streak of land. So he's forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And he's saying that he himself is Christ a king. So you match those two together. He's leading our nation astray. How is he doing that? Don't pay taxes to Caesar and I'm the king. Could you imagine anything more threatening to authoritarian regime than saying, you're not the boss, I'm the boss. You don't get their money. De facto, I get their money if I'm the king. I get tribute. I get taxes. And so Pilate, three times in this passage, Pilate's going to say, I don't find any guilt in him. Pilate never arrives at a guilty verdict. But he acquiesces. Because he is fearful, probably because he is fearful of his political future. He yields because, well, he doesn't want to let the guy go who's, who's going to threaten Caesar. Who's going to start a war, start an insurrection. Which obviously from Barabbas and from Jewish history in between the Old and New Testament, we know that there's lots of insurrections. There's lots of times where... The Jews rise up and they try to um, cast off restraint. In fact, they do it for a, for a stretch before the Romans come. Um, but uh, anyway, so here are the accusations. He's telling them telling not to pay taxes to Caesar. Don't pay tribute. And he, is, he himself is the king. And then Pilate turns to him and says, are you the king of the Jews? And you might think that Jesus' response is um, vague. Is he, what is he saying? He says, you have said so. Well, that's literally what it says. But, but notice in, at the end of chapter 22 and verse 70, when the, the chief priests and the scribes, the Sanhedrin, when they're interrogating Jesus and they say, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. It sounds like it's like whatever you say. But in fact, he's, this is an, an affirmative answer. Jesus is saying, yes, I'm, actually, I am the son of God because see how they respond in 71. What uh, then then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips so that Jesus is what appears to us in English as a rather vague and, and undefined answer is actually Jesus saying, yes, you're right. He says to Pilate, yes, you're right. I am the king of the Jews. So he's owning up to something that Pilate does not understand. And what you have here is that this, this whole episode in, of Jesus' earthly ministry reaching the climax of his Passion Week and the climax of the cross and the empty tomb is Jesus bringing to bear the kingdom of God. And he's coming to those who have laid claim to that which ultimately belongs to God. He's coming to those who laid claim to religious worship, the chief priests and the scribes, Sadducees, Pharisees. And he's coming to the, the rulers and the powers who have laid claim to that which belongs to God. This, all of this belongs to God. 
The kingdom of God is all-encompassing. Like when you look at Jesus in, in Revelation 1, verse 5, Jesus, and I'll talk about this if I get time at the very end, but that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Or consider Daniel's prophecy. Now, this might be an obscure reference, so go back and read Daniel chapter 2 this afternoon. Chapter 2, right, where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has this dream. And he's actually making people guess. That's a whole story. But, but Daniel comes, the prophet who is entrusted with the Spirit of God. He's empowered by the Spirit of God. He says, uh, I'll tell you your dream and I'll tell you what it means. But do you remember the dream? There's this figure that's made of all of these different materials. There's, there's gold and iron. And then there's feet made with clay and iron. And then there is a rock that's cut out by, that is not cut by human hands, who comes out of a mountain and roll, basically rolls down the hill and obliterates all of the, that, that statue. And what Daniel says is that, the, that this part of the, the, the statue represents this empire, and this part of the statue represents this empire, and this part of the statue represents this empire, and ultimately the kingdom of God, though it is small in its beginnings, comes and topples all of the kings of the earth. Anything that is held in opposition to God will fall. This is why the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 saying, He must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. Yes, that is a spiritual reality. Yes, that applies to the powers and the principalities and the cosmic places. Satan and all of the fallen angels, they will fall and they will bend their knee to the risen Jesus, the exalted Christ, the reigning and ruling King of kings and Lord of lords. But so will earthly authorities. And we don't talk about this enough or ever. I've never, I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon on it. Maybe I'm wrong. But Jesus is owning up to being the king of the Jews, but he does not command. He does not command exalted power. He could come and bring, right? He could bring all of the legions of angels. He could deliver himself from this moment despite the power of Rome. Despite the accusations of the Sanhedrin, despite the Roman soldiers, despite Herod, despite it all, Jesus could come with a legion, legions upon legions of angels and be delivered in like a blink of an eye. And yet he has willingly put himself before this wicked ruler representing a wicked empire. Pilate is, you know, just to give you background, right? He is called, uh, he is a perpetrator of wicked injustice in the, in the Gospels themselves. Just go look at uh, chapter 13, verse 1, where he mixes the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices. He brings in images of Roman deities and plants them into the temple at some point in his governorship. He is provo- pro- provoking so much of what's happening in Jer- Jerusalem and Israel. And Jesus is willingly... Bending the knee here. And Pilate, I I think he doesn't actually take him seriously. I don't find guilt in him. And then they come with this other accusation at the end. Verse 5. They're saying, well, those those first three or the the one umbrella with the two under it, right? He's forbidding us to pay taxes and he's saying he's a king. That's not doing it for Pilate. 
It's not enough information for him. So they go with verse 5. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place, saying, He is an insurrectionist. He is, he's stoking rebellion, not just in Jer- Jerusalem, but from, from Galilee south. Now, Galilee is up north, right? Up north, Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem is further south. All throughout this region, he's teaching and he's stoking rebellion. Well, you're not, you're not going to deal with this, Pilate? And part of the implication here, and we see it more clearly in some of the other Gospels, is like, what if we go tell Caesar ourselves? And so when he hears about Galilee, his ears perk up. Maybe I can shift this off a little bit to Herod. Now, Herod is the, a tetrarch of Galilee. He's, uh, he's sort of a, a vassal king, a servant king underneath the Roman Empire. It's, it's, it's complicated, but it's political. And he has jurisdiction up in, Jeruz- in, in Galilee. But notice, everybody's in Jerusalem. Pilate would normally be in Caesarea, in the Roman, Roman capital, if you will, of the district. And Herod would normally be up in Galilee, but everyone's in Jerusalem for what? Passover. So all, of the, all these kings, if you will, all of these rulers are gravitating to the city of David for Passover. Remember what Passover was, just quickly. What happens? Who loses, who wins? Who loses? Egypt, the Egyptians, Pharaoh, superpower of the day, loses. Mighty demonstration of God's saving hand when Egypt is washed away with the waters of the Red Sea. Who wins? A beleaguered band of slaves. Israel. No, I mean, they, they don't have power. They don't have strength. There's just a bunch of them who are immediately frightened as soon as they leave Pharaoh's oversight. So God brings his people out. And, and remember, Passover represents the act of deliverance and redemption in the Old Testament, and it involves the decimation of the superpower of the day. And here we have now a representative of the superpower of the day, Pilate, encountering Jesus around Passover, and now he's shuttled off to another local leader on Passover. This is not incidental, and it's not coincidental, this is important. When Pilate, so Pilate hands him off to, to Herod. And we learn, as we knew already in the gospel, chapter 9, I think it is, 9-9, nine, nine, Herod, Herod already wanted to see Jesus. He had heard all of these stories in Galilee of, of the wonder-working, miracle-working Jesus. And so he wanted to meet him so that he could see something. It's exactly what our text says. So while Pilate is concerned about power and politics and securing his position and making sure that, that things are, 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 are right before Caesar, Herod here is more, he's curious. Pilate is rather dismissive of Jesus, but Herod has been longing to see Jesus. But dear ones, there's a, there's a curiosity about Jesus that is not holy and not wholesome and will actually be detrimental to your spiritual health. Herod, Herod when Herod, oh, excuse me, verse 7. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad 
Very glad for he had long desired to see him. Why? Because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. He was hoping to see some sign. He wanted, he wanted to show. He was not pursuing Jesus for redemption. He was not pursuing Jesus for salvation. He was pursuing Jesus for a show. Or if we could boil it down a little bit, he wanted entertainment rather than worship. We could stab that dagger all over the place, right? That's not my point this morning. But we need to watch out for bare curiosity. If, if your interest in Jesus does not have some kernel of worship, even if you're seeking this morning, if you're not in relationship with Christ and you're simply curious about who He is, I'm not talking to you right now, right? Find out who He is. But if your only pursuit of Jesus is somehow to bring you entertainment, to see some fantastical thing happen, to have some sort of experiential experiential experience, some sort of experience, if it's not worshipful, then this bare curiosity is spiritually deadly. Because you can become aware of Jesus. You might even see lives transformed by Jesus. You might even sit under the preaching of the word of Christ. You might hear the gospel, see others believe the gospel. You might even agree to it in principle. But it's all sort of a show to you. As though you were, you were preparing like a Ken Burns documentary. Look at how fantastic and interesting this is. Never touching your heart. And I have to warn you against that. But if you are going to approach Jesus, you must approach, must approach Jesus on Jesus' terms. And you must approach Jesus with the end of worship. There's no other right posture that we can have toward the Lord Jesus other than yielding worshipful faith leading to obedience. And Herod does not have that. And notice Jesus' response to bare curiosity. Silence. That is not a field he is going to play in. That is not a desire he is going to meet. Jesus will not be the court gesture of your life. Showing a little bit of flair and a little bit of experience, a little bit of fun over here. While you go about your way, worshiping, worshiping yourself or something else. He is Lord. So he finds no guilt as well. After examining him and mocking him, putting this, the mockery of the, the beautiful garment around him, he sends him back to Pilate. His desire unmet. And Pilate, all the while, I see no guilt. I see no guilt. I see no guilt. And that's spread through all. But then in verses 18 through 25, we see him. He's, he's really, he's pressing. He's pressing to release Jesus. And you see this governor who has the authority to do it. Despite the Jews, despite the Jewish leaders, he has the authority to cut Jesus loose. 
But his political aspirations are leaving him in bondage to the false accusations of the Jewish authorities. And so when, they, when he proposes that he punish him and release him, whip him, scourge him, and release him in verse 16, they say, away with this man in verse 18 and release to us Barabbas. And so they propose a trade. Give us the murderer and the insurrectionist and keep Jesus. And the irony is, is that as they request Barabbas, they choose Barabbas, one who is held for the same crimes that they themselves are now perpetrating. They are perpetrating the murder of Jesus. And they are perpetrating insurrection against the kingdom of God. So they choose one like them. Rather than a king to reign over them. And change their hearts. Barabbas' crimes are repeated in verse 19 and 25. And Luke's doing that for emphasis. See the guy that they're choosing. See the one who is like them. And each step along the way, at each movement of Jesus, where he goes from the Sanhedrin to Pilate to Herod, and this trade with Barabbas, you have hands that are getting red with the blood of Christ, not in a good way. Jesus is shuttled from station one to station two of wicked leaders who are seeking now who are seeking his demise, who have him aimed at the cross. And here we have the alignment of the godless and wicked rulers of the age with the eternal plan of God. That as they war with God, as they held up their clenched fists and say, we will not listen to your son, as they continue to be the tenants, you remember the parable of the tenants, where, where the landowner sends servant after servant after servant after servant, and they, they beat them and they kill them, they exile them, and finally he says, I'm going to send my son. Surely they'll respect him. Surely they'll listen to him. And no, they kill him and cast him out of the vineyard. Here we have the Son of God coming to lay claim to what rightfully belongs to Him, and they refuse to turn it over to Him. And in their antagonism towards God, in their war against God, they're actually subverting themselves. They're actually subverting themselves. They're digging out the sand underneath their own feet. And dear one, this is exactly, this is exactly, exactly what you do when you refuse to follow Jesus. When you continue to live your way as though you were the boss, as though you were the captain of the ship. If Frank Sinatra's song, My Way, is your theme song, I would beware that as you hold up your fist Saying, I'm going to live my way. I'm going to say what's right. 
I'm going to do as I please. I'm going to serve my flesh. I'm going to live for my selfish desires. All of those things are clenched fist to heaven. And what you need to know is that while you may have your fist raised high, you have a shovel in your hand in the other, and you are digging out the dirt beneath you, and you will fall. You will fall. And so if I could say anything... Drop the war. You have no idea how to make yourself eternally satisfied. Your flesh cannot tell you that which is most satisfying or pleasurable. Drop the act like you have it together. And come to Christ. Because as they perpetrate the murder of Jesus... So does our sin. He who knew no sin became sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that everyone who calls upon him will be saved. Drop the fist and say, yes, Jesus, I surrender. Yield your life to the only way of life. Jesus. Yield it. Christ. Dear Christian, I would so many things to be gleaned. But that what the world means for evil, and even what the evil one means for evil, God will use for your good. Genesis 50 20. Remember after Joseph. Uh, After Jacob dies and Joseph and his brothers are left in Egypt without the patriarch and his brothers begin to panic that Joseph's going to bring it all to bear. That they betrayed him. They sold him off into slavery. He was all the things that Joseph suffered. He could have pinned right there on all of his brothers and exacted his revenge. But what does he say in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. That all of the evil machinery of the adversary leveled against you through all of that by the cross of Christ, it has been subverted and turned and ultimately it will serve your eternal good. Now there are some things that we suffer in this life. I don't know how. All I have is the promise that it will. It will serve your safety. It will serve your salvation. It will serve your eternal good. There is no suffering for the Christian that is vain or empty. Because our Lord has suffered redemptively. And He has changed our posture in the midst of suffering. But Jesus is the King. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And part of our job now even as we might suffer in this world, is that we must instruct the kings, the queens, the parliaments, the presidents, the legislatures, the governors, the mayors. They need to hear from God's word what God's standard is for them. They need to hear the message, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. That is a message for anyone and everyone who has a shred of authority in this world. From the president or the top of the top all the way down. They are not exempt. There are religious underpinnings to every culture. And yet the Lord Jesus is king of them all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.
that you remain king. And that the path of your exaltation, Lord Jesus, led through the valley of your betrayal, the unjust trials before various tribunals, led through mockery, shame, and as we'll see next week, death. And yet, because you were obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, God has given you a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, Lord, we celebrate recognize and are humbled by your humiliation that you yielded yourself to such treatment and even we have so regarded you in our sin before you have redeemed us we are humbled O Lord for your people I pray for fresh faith renewed vigor in the work of Telling others about Christ, no matter their station in this world. A renewed strength to see redemptive hands in the course of a life often marked by pain and suffering. Lord, I pray for some who continue in their rebellion. They continue estranged from you, removed somewhere deep in their heart. They know it. They've held up defense and offense. And I pray, O Lord, that all of that would melt by the Spirit's work. And that they would know that at the foot of Jesus there is room for them. If they would but come. So, O Lord, would you draw them now? Draw them to Jesus. Give them new life that they might call out in faith to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we love you because you have first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.